I'm Evelyn Glennie, and you're listening to the Evelyn Glennie Podcast. It's a fascinating idea that many journalists who grace our TV screens are household names, and yet they're famous for commenting on what other people are doing rather than being the subject themselves. Having said that, my guest today could well have taken centre stage while working as a journalist in Uganda. He flew alongside President Idi Amin in the presidential jet, and he recounted how, whilst Amin appeared to be asleep, he thought seriously about taking Amin's revolver and shooting him dead, but was a tad worried about the consequences of firing a loose round in a jet. Well, perhaps it's no coincidence that his autobiography is called Shooting History. John Snow has been the face of Channel 4 News since 1989, and from that time he has travelled the world over to cover iconic world events from the fall of the Berlin Wall and the release of Nelson Mandela, to Barack Obama's inauguration and the devastating earthquake in Haiti. His many awards include the Richard Dimbledee BAFTA Award for Best Factual Contribution to Television and the Royal Television Society Awards for Journalist of the Year and Presenter of the Year. But anyway, this is just the tip of the iceberg because John's greatest achievement was realised earlier this year with the birth of his son. <laughs> so, from the landscapes of worn, torn areas and conflicts and elections to now baby rattles and gurgles, I'm keen to see how listening has played a part in John's extraordinary journey. And goodness me, John, it really has been an extraordinary journey and I feel to be honest quite intimidated talking to you because I'm not the most eloquent with words I'm not a professional uh, interviewer or anything like that but you know your life has fascinated so many of us and I'm just curious now with the birth of your son how that has changed your life well uh, I'll come to that in a moment but I just (laughs) want to make this interesting point that I think conceivably we have more in common than you may imagine, you and I, because actually my route to listening was music. My mother was a concert pianist and my father was an extremely dominant figure who didn't really have much time for me, uh, but had a lot of time for my brothers who were very technical. He enjoyed technical things, but my mother played the piano. And very quickly, Mm. I began to stand beside the Blutner, beautiful, which I own to this day, piano. And I would pick up harmonies and main tunes in music that she was playing. Uh, And I remember at about the age of seven, hearing my mother say to my father, George, the boy can sing. (laughs) (laughs) And Brilliant. at that moment, they decided to put me in for voice trials to see whether I could become a chorister mm. in one of the cathedrals. There could, as far as my father was concerned, only be one cathedral that could be considered. Now, that would have to be Winchester because he went to school at Winchester College. Aha, uh-huh, um, indeed. And so I was put in for the voice trials at Winchester and I prevailed. And... Alwyn, appropriately named Surplice, um, <laughs> uh, took me under his wing and 
I learnt not only to sing, but above all, and you know this better than I do, to listen. Because music Absolutely. is as much about listening in terms of its performance as it is about playing or singing. It is. That's so fascinating. And I suppose the use of the voice mm. more than anything, because it's, it's something internal that has to be then, you know, made into this emotional sound painting in a way is, is even different than if you pick up an object like a violin or a marimba or whatever. And, and, and has singing remained important to you during your, your life? Extremely important. Um, I mean, I sing a lot if not in the bath, certainly in the car. <laughs> I mean, anywhere that I'm alone, I let go. Um, but, but because of the nature of my job, I don't really belong to a choir or to any, any method oh. for delivering song. And but now you do. You, you have your son and now. I've got my son. I will be, I'll be singing to him extensively. Um, I, I have two daughters from an earlier marriage, and... Uh, I will be singing to them as ever and to their children in turn. Um, Absolutely. It, it's, it's a gift. And it's a gift as much about listening as it is about performing. It is a gift. And, and I suspect that, you know, with the extraordinary travels that you've had over the years, that you have experienced so many bridges being built through music. You know, I think that with your passion towards music, you've no doubt kept your antennae fairly sharp in that regard. Well, um, yes, and I, I, when I was sort of 18, I volunteered as a voluntary service overseas uh, teacher. Um, gosh, what I had to teach, I don't know. But anyway, I was selected <laughs> and sent to Uganda, which is mm. how I ever came to have anything to do with Idi Amin. Um, although that was to come much later. And I found yeah. myself in the most extraordinarily beautiful spot on the banks of the Nile, about 50 miles north of Lake Victoria, in a school with some 500 uh, secondary school children in it. Uh, I was one of only three Mzungus, white men. Um, uh, one was a fellow VSO uh, and the other was a priest running the school. Um, mm. And otherwise, uh, the teachers were African or indeed Asian. And uh, for me, it was absolute and total bliss. And the music there, which was generated by the children themselves, was mm. of a very high and, and wonderful order. So music never left me. And it's interesting that because I've only made a couple of visits to Africa um, as a patron of Able Child Africa. And, and we went into a primary school in Nairobi. And, you know, I could not believe how extraordinary their music making was. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just so innate to them, their voices, their expression. It's their daily medicine. It, it truly is. And I've never seen such young children, you know, express themselves in, in such an extraordinary way. And this idea of involving dance movement, it was a school who also incorporated sign language. You know, it had a mixture of deaf and hearing kids. And this was all just simply a language. It was all about building bridges. And that had a powerful effect because, of course, we're talking about, you know, music education in this country and, you know, how we're lacking it and it's disappearing and mm. this and that and the next thing. 
and how extraordinary it is to see this environment in, in a school whereby it is an absolutely, there's just no question that they must do it every day. And you could be safe in believing that that school would not have been unique, even though it was obviously dealing with a specific element of uh, mm. education. But uh, mm. I, I never went to a school in Uganda which didn't have this extraordinary musical fibre in their in, in their souls. It, 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 I'm sure it's all here for us to rediscover too, but there it hasn't left them. It, it's still an absolutely mm. core element of Africa. Music, music, music. It, it is, and I wonder, you know, there seems to be a, a surgence of folk music uh, during this past year, especially. Um, you know, people have tapped into, you know, what is the music of my area? You know, what is the, the, the music of, of where I live? And people have actually, uh, you know, engaged with that. And this is what's so beautiful about this country. We've got such great, you know, amateur musicians, strong amateur scenes with choirs, brass bands, orchestras, you name it. And uh, and it's interesting because I wonder if folk music is in fact our classical music. Mm -hmm. Well, it, it, it is an absolutely extraordinary thing, and I think the thing I'd all, the point I would also want to make, which kind of takes me to who I am, I suppose, is <laughs> that it taught me so much about speaking, about consonants, about vowels, about absolute clarity, and about pace, all of which are so important if you're going to communicate satisfactorily as a teacher, as a politician, as a leader, as a manager, as a worker. You know, we need language. Mm. And in many ways in our highly developed world, uh, it's kind of withered a little bit. And it's when you go to continents like Africa, which is it's absolutely universal in Africa, that both mm. the song and the words are clear, musical, have wonderful tone. It's extraordinary. It's a wonderful thing you've said there, actually. Very powerful indeed, because when we think about nursery rhymes, you know, we're, we're, we're babies and we're rocked in our mother's arms mm. or our father's arms and, and, you know, this rhythm, the pace, the presence of the sound and so on is, is, is so amazing and you're right i wonder if social media is dissecting the ability to to listen to the the color of sound and therefore the message we're missing the almost the the um how can i put it the the facial expressions of of um you know here we are we're communicating via zoom uh, but i can only see half of you and you could no doubt, probably see only half of me. So, but thankfully, I can see your face, and which is hugely expressive. But at the same time, it's still not quite the same if we were in the same room, you know, and mm -hmm. and we we could see the whole engine, as it were, uh, ex expressing themselves. But I do wonder if if social media has changed. I suppose the way that journalism and how the messages are being put across. Does that make sense? It does, absolutely. The, the instant is not necessarily the best way of communicating. It's perhaps mm. a moment when you should have some consideration before you actually deliver what you want to say. Uh, and, and, and very often I found it myself that, that communicating on Twitter or 
uh, you know, any any of these um, systems, um, whether I've rushed to performance before I'm oh. ready uh, because I've just thought it and it's gone out. Um, and of course, again, this is the beautiful thing about music. Music can be spontaneous, of course, but kind of organised music um, necessitates some rehearsal, some thought processing, even before you even get together to perform. Um, yeah. I, I, I mean, I love the social network because I love the capacity to be instant and first and all that. But at the same time, it, I can see it, it, it has a potentially destructive power too. And I, I think that, you know, what you've said about, in a way, reflection, because mm, our, mm. our instinct is to see something, read something, and immediately act on that, and, and as opposed to just letting it simmer, which is obviously yeah. what we do with music. Even, I suppose, with, with improvisation, even although it's spontaneous, we do actually still allow an idea to be molded and mm. played around with and you know explored before we go wham you know right this is it now mm. <laughs> you know so that that's in a way interesting but i i've certainly found you know in my own situation as a musician i've really tried to consciously stay clear of looking at other performances, looking at other interpretations and, and that kind of thing, because I think the eye is very quick to pick things up more than the ear is. So I feel that you can be influenced by what something looks like, how someone might be playing something as opposed to the sound of it, because the sound quality is still relatively substandard, you know, through a, a, a computer or a laptop or something. Although there is still an extremely positive relationship between the eye and the ear in the sense that you can see something, you can even hear it, and then you can consider it and decide what was important about that particular experience. And that, of course, is why I absolutely love the job that I do, because I see and hear a lot, but I don't have necessarily immediately to toss it out uh, and, mm. and, and inflict it on the listener or viewer. Uh, I've got time to consider it and, and even shape it and, and mm. write it even, or simply organize it in my head and mm. be ready to unload it, um, which of course is very counter to the, uh, you know, the sort of communications that we're talking about in terms of the digital age. Um, and, and and all that the instant um, and that of course is the beauty of music the fact that it in a sense to make sense music has to be organized yes I mean you could of course you know have a jam session if you like and, and see what happens but in the main we're talking about something highly organized which has involved both the ear and, and the eye mm. um, before being inflicted upon the listener or the viewer. Absolutely. And I suspect that your senses are absolutely razor sharp at the moment as you observe every tiny movement of your son and, mm. uh, you know, picking up on, on every tiny little thing that he 
he projects, you know, to you mm. wondering if he's hungry or if he's sleepy or, uh, you know, which is, is quite, quite lovely. Although the mother has the upper hand at this stage. <laughs> <laughs> I think she, oh. she's probably seeing it before I even get a chance. <laughs> it needs to be teamwork there, John. <laughs> indeed, 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 indeed. Absolutely. Well, I mean, you have had an extraordinary career and you've travelled the, wor the world and, you know, attended such pivotal events in modern history. And um, But, you know, was there something in your childhood that made you so forward-looking or made you curious about people's stories? You know, did you find that you were listening in a certain way, you know, as a young child? Where, where did this interest come from? I, I mean, I loved him, but he was a very dominant figure, my father. He was six foot seven. Uh, he, he, uh, big with it uh, and, and he was a bishop so mm -hmm. he was eight foot in a mitre he was a, a formidable figure and I couldn't pretend that I ever had a very close relationship with him although I loved him I didn't have a problem yeah. with him mm. but, but it wasn't the kind of relationship that many people have enjoyed with a parent that is perhaps slightly more emotionally engaged in communicating with you mm. um, so I, I think I looked, oddly enough, it triggered in me a need to be more expressive, more uh, mm. engaged with other human beings to, to find out what they thought. And that avenue with my father wasn't really very, very open. Mm. Um, you know, he was buried in the Times at breakfast, you know, reading it. Um, and that really was the way the day unfolded. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes when you went on a walk, you could get a little bit, but not much, uh, where it related to the hazelnuts that you could see on yeah. the bushes along the way. But mm. uh, in, in terms of kind of emotional engagement, there was very little. I had quite a lot with my mother, um, largely be because of her music. I think that was the absolute... I mean, she'd been to the Royal College of Music. She was a really fine pianist mm. but she'd had a terrible set back in life which I don't think she really confided to anyone other than me to some extent and that was that she uh, in the course of her performances as a student at the Royal College she lost all her hair she suffered oh. uh, alopecia totalis which in a woman it's bad enough for a man but a bald yes. man is hardly noticeable, but, but a bald woman is a very different thing. And Absolutely. Even if you've got a, a wig, and particularly because you've got a wig, um, it, 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 yeah. it's something disabling, definitely. And yet nobody mm. would say you were disabled because you had no hair. Mm. But in a funny sort of way, she was disabled by it uh, mentally to some extent. Mm. And although she never really confided in me about it... Um, I mean, she said in the car one day driving along, of course, my father, being the sort of man he was, had an open sports car in which three of us were crammed in the back. My poor mother would have a Jack Ma scarf tied tightly <laughs> under her neck to keep her hair on um, <laughs> in the passenger seat. And he'd be revving along the road and driving every minute and she'd be dreading that it might blow off. But there we go. Yeah. Um, but 
uh, I, I had that bond with her, which was partly a kind of sensitivity to her need mm. and partly the music above all. Um, and uh, it was something that my two brothers didn't have to quite the same extent. Mm. Uh, and I, I recognised that. And then, you know, I was lucky enough to get into that choir at Winchester Cathedral and bask, bask for five tender years from eight to 13. How wonderful. In the most glorious music. Um, I mean, it, it's the best start a child could ever have, except for, of course, you were separated from your family and had to be in a boarding school and all that, which I would necessarily rate very highly as an experience. Um, although it did give me the sort of independence which I was able to depend upon later in life a, 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 as a journalist. Um, and, and did you find whilst at school that you conformed to the, the structure of the school um, or did you feel a sense of, oh, I just want to stretch my elbow a little bit, I want to see... I, I'm afraid I, I did a lot of stretching. <laughs> I, 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 I was caned quite often. Um, <laughs> so, um, but that was, that was the way it was and yeah. I think if you weren't, you weren't very interesting. <laughs> yes. <laughs> How fascinating. And and when you decided to, I mean, you, you first of all went in to study law at, yeah. at Liverpool University. Yeah. What was the intention there? You know, had you a, a, a specific aim towards that line of, of uh, no, a career? No, I'm afraid or? to say I had absolutely no interest in it at all. But my <laughs> father, this is such a dreadful story. My father was on a train and found himself sitting opposite a man who turned out to be the professor of law at Liverpool University. And my father, being a headmaster at the time, um, obviously chose the moment to brag about a boy he regarded as being a complete dunce. But anyway, uh, and, so, and by the end of the train journey, I think the professor had effectively agreed to take me. Um, and, and I got in. I mean, no, that was that. But I had to read law, of course, which... I didn't find the most <laughs> elevating, although I have found it useful, you know, in my work. Um, I've sort of understood processes and things. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, but, but of course, the trouble is, uh, I soon forgot his generosity in getting me into the university <laughs> and started trying to change the university. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, it, this was a time, this was a time of great, there was lots of student revolution going on across the country. And in the you know, late 60s. And um, uh, we, it's still happening today to some extent, but we objected to the fact that the Chancellor of the university was a man named Lord Salisbury, who was very much of the old colonial dynasty. Indeed, his family had given the name Salisbury to the capital of Rhodesia. Uh -huh. um, and... Um, uh, we concluded after, I mean, and, and students were definitely up in arms trying to change things. It was a period of great change, the 60s. And um, we concluded that, that the Chancellor wasn't really a fit and proper individual to be the Chancellor of a multiracial, multicultural university and that he should go. The university didn't agree. We had a sit-in in which I was very prominent. Mm. And... Um, when it was all over, 
indeed the the Chancellor summoned me and I went to see him and I said, you know, I'm sorry, but it just doesn't fit with what the university is all about. And he said, well, very much, very well, I shall resign. Oh, goodness. And he did. Goodness. But they, they had my guts for garters and I was disciplined and sent down. That was it. How so extraordinary. I, I never got a degree, but subsequently, a wonderful thing happened. I, I was appointed much later in life as Chancellor of Oxford Brookes University, <laughs> despite the fact of not having a degree myself. Um, <laughs> and there was a wonderful Vice-Chancellor there who subsequently got uh, translated, as I think we could put it, translated to Liverpool University. <laughs> and one of her first actions was to give me an honorary doctorate, which I grabbed with great enthusiasm. <laughs> That's a brilliant story. And I mean, you know, thinking about this past year, whereby, you know, students have been turned upside down with the pandemic and, and so on, and a lot of listening has had to, to happen with the students. That needs to happen anyway, really. But, um, you know, it, it it's... I, I think what's become very apparent this past year is, is making sure that those bridges between the staff, the, 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 the people who provide in the universities and establishments are really listening to students and, and mm. they are the change makers of the future at the end of the day. Well, and my evidence in talking to a lot of students uh, in these last months <clears throat> has been um, that they have felt very under cared for. Um, there was the awful scenes at Manchester University mm. where railings were put up to keep them in there mm. uh, and, and on the basis that you shouldn't let intruders get in and the rest of it but mm. they felt imprisoned by it and, and I, I wasn't a clever moment. Absolutely and how important do you think that the personality of a journalist is I mean, when we watch someone on television, they're delivering facts and and information and so on. And how important is it to be very neutral visually, or do you feel that it's absolutely essential for the personality of the journalist to come through? The personality cannot be allowed to get in in the way of facts uh, that I accept. But I think at the same time you have an obligation to the people you're uh, investigating or reporting or describing to treat them with respect and with understanding, um, whoever they are, even mm. if they're politicians of whom you disapprove, whatever. Um, you know, in the end, the viewer is not particularly interested in my views. It's interested in the truth. So that's, I think, what one strives to try and deliver. Um, it's, it's a difficult balance. Mm. Um, I don't know why I've managed to survive for so long, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, it's fascinating because, you know, I'm a normal person. I switch the news on and, and I see our newsreaders and... and it, I mean, it's, it, it, there's a difference, I think, between being a news reader and a journalist, uh, mm -hmm. because, uh, and I'd love you to explain perhaps mm. how you got into journalism and how you got into news reading and which one came first. 
Um, but but I do find that that I want a little bit of personality there somehow. Um, mm. I I really do uh, simply because. I think that because there are other mediums to receive the news now, we can go onto mm. the websites and social media and so on, that actually to have a human being deliver something is, is really becoming quite a unique thing nowadays. Well, it comes down to trust, I think, more than anything. Um, and um, the, the degree to which they trust you to interrogate mm. the truth that you are delivering has he done his job is he you know i mean i'm very lucky because obviously the format in which i work is a reasonably spacious one in the sense that it's a one-hour program when i first started um in, in in commercial radio uh you know the gobbits of news were so short that there was no likelihood that you'd ever had any time at all to interrogate anything and you were just delivering words, reading. I was a news reader. I don't regard myself as a news reader now. I believe that you and I are going on a journey. And I, I've been trying to find out uh, various elements of what I'm trying to present. Mm. Or I and my team and the other people around me. Mm. It's obviously not a solo, solo thing, but it's a, it's a team thing. But we do have the space. We only have one big program to work for every day. We're not having to be available every hour to update. We mm. can devote the whole day to interrogating, you know, one thing. I'm working on a little story which might, you know, interest you, which is the whole business of this helicopter that's going to be launched on Mars, uh, oh. and which is going to fly in, in a pla on a planet in which there's only 1% of the atmosphere that there is on Earth, and yet it is dependent on the atmosphere to fly. So theoretically, mm. it can't possibly happen, but they're convinced it will. Mm. And who knows, by the time people listen to this, it will have happened, or indeed it won't. But anyway, there it is. And um, I discovered that the man in charge of this, of just the helicopter element, came from Gaza. Oh, Gaza being part of Palestine, wow. uh, a very wow. impoverished and embattled and difficult arena to come from. Mm. And I thought, this is the most amazing story. Absolutely. Uh, and how did a man born in poverty and conflict arrive at a point at which somebody has trusted him to the point of taking a helicopter and landing the first time any, any craft has ever landed on Mars, uh, and indeed, no, the whole thing's just incredible. And, and so I, I, I'm interested in the man even more than I am in the interest, interested in the actual project. Uh, I'm only interested in the project in that it's complex and difficult and beyond science. Mm. Uh, and, and yet it is a man who was born in these very troubled circumstances and lived, you know, until he was 20 in Gaza, before getting a scholarship to a university in California, and then, woof. Uh, and that, I regard that as a pretty good example of quite a lot of what I do, is try and dig out something that's really interesting and, and shines a light on an aspect of 
activity or news or information that mm. you know nobody's thought of. Absolutely, um, and I think it's 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 exploring in a way not the obvious, not mm, the, the thing that we think you are going to report mm, on. But mm. I mean, this this man has a story, as yes. you say, and, and it's the most unlikely things that become so interesting. But you've put your finger on it because another journalist who would have perhaps had a scientific education or whatever would say, forget where the man comes from, for goodness sake. It's the whole process of how on earth you defeat the atmospheric need for the helicopter to fly mm. and all that. Forget the guy. I mean, you, let's just have a look at the science. That's yeah. the mesmerising thing. This is a first. The fact that the man was born in Gaza is neither here nor there. Mm. Mm. It's fun, isn't it? It it is interesting, and it needs that raw hand, that that yeah. thinking, the the, the person yeah. at the end of yeah. the day. You know. I mean, I think our duty as journalists is to interrogate everything we're asked to do, and very often that we'll find that what is understood about the story is right. But then there are quite often times where you think, hang on a minute, has anyone ever looked at this bit? Absolutely. And as I guess, you know, trying to create a musical analogy, it's, it's almost exploring uh, what you don't see on the printed page, you know, or exploring the sound beneath the surface of mm. the string or the skin or the 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 key or whatever it might be you know there's and that has to come from the individual not mm -hmm. from a, ch a, ch a tutor book or method book mm. which of course explains how people love specific musicians because of what they bring to the specific instrument they play and that's why people love you Oh, heavens, I don't know about that, but, but it, it is interesting. And I guess going back to the social media aspect is that, you know, a, a lot of the practice rooms are kitted out with tablets and one thing or another, iPads or whatever they're, they're called. And and uh, for students to look up different performances of the pieces mm. they're learning. And, and yes, there are advantages to that, but there's an awful lot of disadvantages, I feel. You know, where's that curiosity if, and the questions that you you have yourself, you know, and that you're mm. grappling with and, you know, turning around in your sleep and, and so on. But mm -hmm. uh, re really interesting. So I'm curious, John, as to how you went from uh, a law student and then deciding to leave university and venturing into journalism. Sadly, it was the university that decided I should leave the university. Um, oh, okay. So I went down in disgrace. <laughs> and um, uh, I really was at a loss to know what on earth to do. I mean, initially, of course, I thought I must try and get in somewhere else, but I thought that that's very unlikely. Um, and um, I had a very supportive cousin, my cousin Peter Snow, who is also yeah. a journalist. And uh, he he knew somebody who was at Oxford with him. And she, here we are, see family connections. But she said that she worked for somebody called Lord Longford. And Lord Longford was a big social reformer. Uh, and... Um, it, it, both eccentric and wonderful. Anyway, he had a day centre for homeless and vulnerable young people in London. And the guy who'd been running it had had a nervous breakdown. And uh, she said, look, he's looking for somebody to run this place. Shall I suggest you? 
And I said, oh, by all means, little, little having the slightest understanding as how on earth I would deal with such troubled kids. Mm. But it was in Covent Garden. Uh, no, the original one was in Soho. But anyway, I was summoned to Soho, to the day centre, and there waiting to interview me, with a view to whether I could actually have the job or not, was Lord Longford, Jack Profumo of the Profumo scandal, um, and... Yeah. Uh, Rear Admiral Sir Matthew Slattery, who was the head of British Airways, or British Overseas Airways. And um, they grilled me, and I got the job. And threw my everything into leading this place of great suffering and deprivation. It was a terrible time on the drug scene. Uh, A lot of kids were using barbiturates, heroin, etc. Work was not plentiful. Um... And um, but we developed a fabulous team of about a dozen people. We we managed to get residential accommodation, etc., as well as the day centre, and um, it was amazing work. But at the end of it all, um, you know, I was exhausted and needed mm-hmm. to do something else. And um, it was the birth of uh, commercial radio. LBC, London Broadcasting, was the first commercial radio station. And the self-same cousin, Peter Snow, said, you should put in for that. And I thought, well, really? So I did. (laughs) And interestingly, their problem was that the only people who'd ever worked in commercial radio were people from New Zealand, from Australia, from America, from Canada, but nobody from Britain. And they, they, they needed somebody who would deliver the news on LBC, which was, after all, a sort of news station, uh, mm. who wouldn't necessarily be a transatlantic or, you know, colonial voice. And so I got, I got the job, just reading the news. But, of course, it was only a few months before I broke out and started reporting. And my greatest boon, which it is to this day, is having a bicycle. In, in those days, uh, the IRA was bombing its way across London oh, and the traffic would back up. There'd be panic, there'd be fire engines, all the rest of it. But you could nip through on your bike and get right to the mm. seat of the crime. And we yeah. had walkie-talkies that we used to broadcast on. So I'd actually be pedalling along. Mm. and so I could see the smoke uh, it, and it was quite sort of dramatic stuff. And all I did was, I didn't know anything at all. What I did know is what I could see. So mm. I reported what I could see. And that was the beginning of my reporting life. And I suppose what you could see and what you could feel yeah. Yeah. as well. I mean, the senses being a, a large part of the story. Yeah, absolutely. So um, that was my break into uh, journalism. And uh, So it's, it, it seems in a way that, that uh, you're pretty fearless you know you you seem to have planted yourselves in situations you know of thinking well I don't know anything about this but I'll give it a go I don't know anything about this but I'll give it a go and and you know has this been is this a large part of who you are willing to explore the unknown push the barriers this is the gorgeous thing about it ignorance was by far the best equipment once you accepted (laughs) to yourself that you knew nothing then everything was an exploration and had to be checked mm. and the rest of it. And that actually makes mm. you not a bad journalist, actually. You haven't taken mm. anything for granted. And you haven't sort of thought, well, I think it was this, or 
I saw somewhere it was that. And no, you, you, if you were going to succeed, and I knew how ignorant I was, um, you, you needed to check stuff and really... And the other thing was you tried to get to the actual source who could tell you what was going on, the policeman, the vicar, the whoever it was, the doctor, uh, who, mm. who could, you know, fill in what you didn't know of what was happening. Mm. And I suppose it goes back to what you were mentioning about the, the gentleman from Gaza mm. and, uh, and the Mars is, is sourcing those people, the, the little yes. bits and pieces that make that story absolutely, come alive. Absolutely. And we're blessed That's, with wonderful human beings who are all different and very often have an absolutely wonderful individual story to tell. And they may not be very good at telling it, but you can do that. They need just to supply you with the facts and the information that mm. has affected whatever it is that they're doing that you're reporting upon. Mm. Mm. So you have your mother's piano. Do you still have your bike? I, well, I, I had a better <laughs> bike than I had then. Uh, but I certainly do, absolutely. And I ride every day. I ride to and from work and at work. Uh, you know, within reason. I mean, there's no point living in a great city like London if you can't move around. And the one thing mm -hmm. about a bicycle is you can move anywhere as long as you've got a bit of puff. <laughs> 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 and, and with your experience, you know, certainly as a newsreader, I would say, are you in a position whereby you're asked to um, advise on how to newsread, if you know what I mean, or little tips here and there for very future rarely. up and coming? Interestingly, very rarely. I mean, nobody's approached me like I approached my cousin. Um, but, uh, no, I, it's interesting. I think the awful thing is that most of us who ever get to the point of being able to read the news, uh, <laughs> which I find a rather banal description of what we actually do, because we are mm. involved in writing it and shaping it and checking it and, and sometimes making it. Um, but no, very few people have ever come up to me and said, you know, how do I do this, that or the other? And actually you can't really tell them, except to be yourself, don't pretend to be somebody else. And that, that's interesting what you've said, is that I hadn't fully realised that a, a, a newsreader would in fact write you know, a substantial amount of the material uh, that is said. Well, it, it depends what you're really talking about, because there are people mm. who, who really are presenters of news yeah. and, and, and not involved really in interrogating much. I think where I work, um, you're much more part of a, a, a machine that is interrogating everything that we do. Mm. But we've got space to do it, because... It's not a 10-minute news, it is an hour. Uh, yeah. and, and that actually gives you a freedom that you know, very few people enjoy. Mm, absolutely. And have there been moments when uh, perhaps you've been at a particular scene um, and you're watching history unfold and it, it's in a way crossed your mind that you could actually affect what's What's happening? What's going to happen? I don't think you get as constructed as that. I think mm. what happens is you see something which you're convinced nobody else has seen and nobody's reported on, and it's a vital element of what you're looking at. I mean, we could go back to the Gaza man. 
And we could say, well, there will be a lot of people who have not been to Gaza and for whom Gaza won't mean anything. His background doesn't matter at all. The point is he's an American. Mm. I mean, he is now. I mean, mm. he's an American citizen. Yeah. And he talks, you know, oh, Jesus, you know, we're doing this, etc. <laughs> um, I mean, you'd never know. You'd never know. And mm. uh, I, it was a fragment that I picked up from somebody else who said something like, you know, I think somebody who knew that I had worked a lot in Gaza and I think they just said, oh, and by the way, his family came from Gaza. Um, anyway, I mean, yeah. you know, it's, it's all part of the job. It is really. And, and you mentioned that uh, your cousin, mm -hmm. Peter, mm -hmm. and of course your nephew, yeah, Dan, yes. Dan, our history man, yeah. um, extraordinary. I mean... What's the best piece of advice they, or either one of them, have given to you? Well, you, you're, you're, it's an interesting thing to list them because both Dan and Peter are extremely bright and have very, very good degrees. Yeah. The misfit is the one in the middle, it's me, um, <laughs> because I don't even have a degree, uh, as we've spelt out. And, um, uh, but can they sing? Well, I might have the edge on them for that. You know. <laughs> Actually, no, not really, not really, because no. uh, all Peter did was to throw me a lifeline and said, get on with it. And mm. there's no point mm. getting on with it and carrying on even though you're not up to it. You've got to prove yourself mm. that he can't do any more than that. Um, mm. And so... Um, I mean, you could say it was nepotism, but, but it wasn't really. He just gave me a tip, and then we got going. Yeah. And, of course, mm. you know, it, uh, there is obviously the danger that somebody's going to say, well, uh, Peter's pretty good, so I guess John will be all right. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> and maybe it happened to Dan too, I doubt, because he's such a very bright guy. He's extraordinary as well. Yeah. I mean, all three of you are. It's extraordinary that within that one family that three major, major figures, you know, have really influenced our, our, our lives. Yes, yes, it is, it is interesting, yeah. And do you, do you think that there's, there's been an event or events whereby you've reported on that really stand out and have affected you personally? Wow, I mean, there have been so many. Um, mm. You know, visiting Chernobyl after all that, really Goodness. shattering to see what what humankind uh, is capable of generating by his and her mistakes. Um, I went to a, there was a big, massive, great oil uh, tanker that crashed into the Normandy coast uh, called the mm. Torrey Canyon. And mm. uh, a lot, a few people died on that and it defoliated the whole coastline and that sort of thing. Um, and then wars, endless wars, w wars mm. in Gaza, wars in Iraq. Um, I've been to Iran a lot, which is a absolute... I mean, I feel blessed to have been to Iran. And yet, obviously, it's a place of immense tension because of the, the collision between the United States and the, their view of the world and Islamic fundamentalists in in Iran, who have another version of the world. Mm. Actually, the amazing thing is that you can go there and almost be oblivious of the terrible tension that surrounds them. 
but they're absolutely wonderful people. And they, you can understand how Persia was such a brilliant civilization, the Persian civilization, uh, mm. because they're imbued in some way with a, a wonderful streak of, of brilliance. And it shows even to this day, <clears throat> despite the fact that, of course, you know, some of it's been put to a terrible uh, end, like nuclear development and, and mm. attitudes towards mm. law and order. Mm. I mean, do you hope that um, moving, I mean, do you feel optimistic about the world, about society, um, about how we're moving forward. I know it's probably almost impossible to say or to condense it in, in, a, in, a, in a few words, but, you know, we're... we're but you're asking me in a time of pandemic. You're asking me something. Yeah. When a yes. pandemic has inflicted upon us thoughts of our frailty, our vulnerability, our danger, what we're doing to the planet, what role did we mm. play in generating this pandemic? I mean, who knows? I mean, mm. and we bully our planet. We do terrible mm. things to it. I think it's almost impossible. Here, here's a bold thing to say. I think it's almost impossible to be a committed reporter and not recognise that our greatest danger is global warming and abuse mm. of the planet. We, we have to sort ourselves out. So much of what is happening <clears throat> is happening because we have created the potential for it to happen. I mean, I can't tie the exact link between the pandemic and me. I didn't get it, obviously, but at the same time, did I play a part in bringing it about? Did I consume things I shouldn't have consumed in terms of... Did, did we allow ourselves to go in a particular direction which affected the welfare of Earth? Have we allowed ourselves to be too abusive of Earth? I don't know. I mean, but I have found that the pandemic had generated um, a kind of introspection that I never thought I was likely to, to participate in. And do you think that there can be hope that we can build on this? So out of the tra tragedy of the pandemic, and I'm a great believer in, in sort of yin and yang, mm. you know, we... We might have to endure something, but from that, other things sprout through and, and so on. But, you know, do you really feel we can all listen to ourselves? Because ultimately, it's our own actions. Mm -hmm. You know, I guess, you know, as a musician, and you'll completely understand this, in order to learn a piece, you, you go step by step by step, note by note by mm -hmm. note by note. Mm -hmm. and, and rather than looking at this great big piece thinking oh my lord how am I going to negotiate this and and but but these small steps that make a difference you know these little actions surely we can maybe begin to give ourselves a chance to listen I, I do I am an optimist I am an optimist I may have sounded rather pessimistic in listing those threats but I do believe we're capable of being better to ourselves than we are being better to our planet than we are. Um, but it will take leadership as well. You know, we have to have people mm. who will lead us and and those leaders need to understand who we are and what we believe and what we feel and what we experience. And, and it needs to be a, a joint project between us all. Um, I, d I do think, and I'm not a scientist, 
of the pandemic is in some way related to our bullying of the planet. And do you think that the leaders that we, we do have are leaders whereby you, you, they can really connect with people's situations. I mean, not all of us can, of course we can't, because we have our, the upbringing that we have and so on. But it, it's you can read about things but not feel it. And do you feel that they're, they're, I mean, for you as a journalist, you are, as you've so brilliantly explained, you know, exploring all these nukes and crannies and, and fishing out the... the the, the non-obvious things that make that story something that we can feel. There's emotion there. There's, there's an avenue of understanding there um, and an avenue whereby we think, oh, well, hold on a second. It, it, we, we ask questions of ourselves. And for some reason, I, I struggle sometimes with, with the leaderships because of... of um, where is that avenue to, to truly feel, rather than it just being words, but to feel a situation? And I say this simply because, you know, we're constantly um, in the arts world, you know, <laughs> trying to put our case forward as regards to music education or, or whatever, and trying to, to put forward the, 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 the positives, the essentials of the arts in our lives. And it's sometimes hard to get that. Now, it could just simply be because we're just not adequate at putting our case forward. Um, but I, I do worry sometimes about, you know, huge issues. Mm. Well, I think maybe we ask too much of our leaders or expect too much of our leaders. And we need mm, to work harder great. ourselves. And we need to be more receptive to what's going on and more active mm. in trying to redress, redress imbalance. I'm very struck by the fact that if you were to lay a map of deprivation in Britain, inequality, and then you laid another map of the outbreak of the pandemic, on top of that map, the two would elide. Now, of course, there are mm. some well-off people who have suffered in the, in the pandemic, but they are a tiny minority compared with the vast wave of people who have suffered, who tend mm. not to be of the more privileged people in the country. Can you imagine that your home work life may change now with with the arrival of your son, but also... Oh, I think it's... Yes, I think it's inevitable. Yes, absolutely. Yes. And, uh, and also I'm getting old, you know, I mean... Och away. Uh, och away. Not like at that. all. Yeah. No. And, and also I think with the 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 different ways that we can work now, which a lot of it is done sure. virtually, and, sure. and this must be a nice positive thing for you to be at home. Well, you see, for example, you know, we had to be in work at, you know, 9.30 for the meeting, but we've been meeting on Zoom, for the, and I'm wondering whether that's our sort of start of the day, Zoom, um, and I wonder whether we're really going to go on going in it. You know, because it's a very long day, it's up to... It's, it's, comes kind of leave home at nine get home at nine um hugely long sudden, day yeah yeah yep yeah, yeah. i think we'll we'll all be uh revising i think or readdressing Maybe. you know and this and this surely can help the planet as well you know sure i mean i i agree i mean i think i think we need to swear to ourselves that we won't go back to exactly what we had before that in some way we'll yeah. use this experience 
to build ourselves a better and more considerate world. Mm. John, it's been an absolute pleasure. There, there are so many things I, I would still like to ask, but I'm very conscious of your time that you've given so generously to me. And it's been absolutely fascinating and, and such a privilege to meet you in this way. Um, we have to be thankful for technology in many, many ways, and it's, it's certainly provided this opportunity. So thank you so much. Well, thank you so much, Evelyn, for uh, e e even thinking of having a conversation with me. I would have oh. loved to have spent the entire time talking to you about <laughs> what you do and how indeed you prevailed. But I've, I've read a certain amount uh, <laughs> about it. But nevertheless, it's just wonderful to communicate with you in this way and yet to know that it has been achieved by all sorts of miraculous uh, <laughs> methodology of one sort or another. Thank you, John. I would like to say a very special thank you to Audio Network for supporting my podcast. Thank you so much for listening. See you in my next one.